Good morning. First of all, I, I just got to, I got to give appreciation to the band this morning for this like acoustic sound this morning from Martha and Tommy Miller, David Tuck, and Jack Hodges. Wow, what a sound and uh, what a helpful uh, worshipful frame uh, that pro provides for us this morning. Um, um, I'm Pastor Joe Patterson, discipleship pastor here at 930. And um, if you encounter me, hopefully you're a newer person here at Broadway. Um, in, in, in my uh, attempting to connect you to the, the, the life of our church and also uh, potentially if uh, pastoral care needs are uh, uh, in your family. And hopefully I'm connecting with you in that way as well. And uh, if you're joining us online today, a welcome to you and um, excited to, to be here. I hope uh, you will join us this Wednesday night uh, for our 930 community cookout that's going to take place back here in this back area. Um, and I look forward to, if I haven't had an opportunity to connect with you, to share some life with you on Wednesday night. 1984. How many people in this room remember 1984? Yeah, yeah. Um, and if you don't remember 1984, just hang in with me here for a second, okay? Because I'm going to tell you about the good times here, okay? Because there were good times uh, in that year. It was a good year for Joe Patterson and for... His family and I grew up in this area of the United States called Central Ohio, and it was just a wonderful place to to grow up. It it was guided by all things hard work and and the world famous Ohio State Buckeyes and uh, this place called Donato's Pizza and and just some rugged blue collar family values. And it was it was exciting for me and my family in 1984. Um, we uh, were expecting. My, my brother, my sister and I were expecting a, a, a sibling, um, my, my brother Ben. And, and with that, you know, our family had, had kind of just kind of went out there, put themselves out there and purchased the new 1984 Chevy Caprice Classic station wagon. I mean, it was an aircraft carrier, I'm telling you. But it's that, that got us from A to B. And it was, uh, our, our, our life was changing and it necessitated that purchase because of the third sibling. Um, and it was announced in my hometown in two to three years, they were going to build a mall. And boy, we thought we had, a, we were going to arrive, you know, we had the mall, we were going to have a mall. And, um, and, and Van Halen, this band released this great album and, and this song called Jump that had this unmistakable synthesizer, power chord introduction that just changed my music life. Was I the only one or were there others out there? Yeah, yeah. I feel you today. Yes. The Summer Olympics were being held in Los Angeles, and we just couldn't stop watching that. Um, and my father was coaching football at that time, and our high school football team won the conference championship in like the first time in 20 years. And uh, most of my mornings I spent playing one-on-one uh, -on -one wiffle ball matches with my next-door neighbor, uh, Jason Severing, who would come across to my front yard, and we had this makeshift backstop and these, like, pert, strategically mature trees in our yards used as bases. It was, it was a good life. It was a free life. It was easy life until it wasn't. Has anybody ever seen one of these dishes in their house before? Raise your hand if you've ever seen or 
seen one of these or had one of these or... And here's the thing. If you've seen one of these or had one of these, there's a 100% chance that this was manufactured and created in one of two places, either Corning, New York, hence Corningware, right? Or my hometown, Lancaster, Ohio, headquarters of Anchor Hawking Glassware. This was likely made in my hometown. Much of the world's glass industry took place in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s in my hometown. It's, it's, it's been said that about 70% of the world's glass was created by these hardworking artisans in my hometown in Central Ohio. More than half my friends growing up were the sons and daughters of these hardworking employees and managing partners and executives of Anchor Hawking. In, in Lancaster in 1984, industry included Anchor Hawking and just more of Anchor Hawking. <laughs> it's just, it's what our town was. So in 1984, in the midst of all this good stuff, good music, good things happening, I began to sense that something was not right with the universe with some of my peers. And what I recognized was that an announcement had been made by the CEO of Anchor Hawking, J. Ray Topper. Mr. Topper had announced that sometime in 1985, Anchor Hawking was going to have to close plant number two in our town. So let me give you a little context for this. In our town, on the west side, large plant one. On the east side, large plant two. So right smack dab and all the good, J. Ray Topper was suggesting that our lifeblood was about to be cut in half. The inhale and exhale of our town, if it had two lungs, it was about to start breathing on one. And this, this news, of course, it affected everyone, but, but certainly in different doses. I mean, my, my father was a school teacher and football coach, and so this was not going to affect us directly, but my neighbors and my, and my friends, I could sense that it was just putting everybody on edge, and we were amongst that. The most interesting thing happened, though. There were some families involved in this that they began evaluating this kind of sobering news, and they started making plans to adjust. These folks ultimately were able to, in a tough moment, gather themselves, hear this warning, and recognize, oh, about 35 minutes away north of here is a town called Columbus. And there are opportunities there. And it wouldn't be that big of an adjustment for my family to take a job there and take that trip every day. Yet there were other of these folks that begin to operate as if they never received the message. They never believed it. Some of these folks in December 1985, when they padlocked the door of plant number two, they appeared blindsided, severely traumatized. They never adjusted, and they never recovered. I mean, to this day, I can read obituaries 
from my hometown newspaper and I can, I can see who, which is which. You see, some of these obituaries go, Johnny or Sally worked for plant number two for 20 years, then dot, 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 after that. And then category number two is Johnny and Sally worked for plant number two for 20 years, and then nothing. It's very clear. Very clear. It's, 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 it really, um, I learned so much from these people about what to not to do and what to do in life <laughs> from that experience when I was 10 years old. Because I found out that you just kept showing up for people. And I found out that you did that because your friends and your family members depended upon you. And today, Anchor Hawking, I mean, they still make things like that, but it's a shell of itself. It's, it's uh, one time a, a place that had over 10,000 employees back in the 1950s is now under 1,000 employees, if that gives you any indication of the kind of adjustment that my towns had to make. So life can be really, really good. And it can be filled with promise, and all of a sudden there's times when like one or two pivotal kind of decisions or events start making life really, really, really challenging, messy, and troubling all of a sudden. Life, even at its best of forms, it's going to encounter trauma. It's going to encounter trouble. It's going to encounter challenge. It's going to encounter messy. The question becomes, how will you navigate it? We hear stories like this stuff from my hometown. You know, some people are crippled. Some people figure it out. What's the difference? You know, what is, why does one navigate all that and yet another one get crippled? It's an interesting question. And there's probably not just one answer to that question. But Jesus knew the type of trouble that we'd face. In John 16, this is what he said. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Not you might have trouble. <laughs> you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. The branch of peace offered to anybody in need of hope when they face trouble. But life isn't always funny and fun and smiles, is it? You know, in my childhood, one of my favorite shows was Chips Patrol. How, how many people remember that show? Yeah. You know, in that show, uh, John Baker and Frank Poncherello, isn't that a great name? Such a great name, i got to say it twice. Frank Poncherello. They were always on the case. They were always figuring out the crime. They were always so heady and smart. And, and they were always getting the good guy. I mean, getting the bad guy. And, and they were good times. And every time the episode would end, we'd always see these, like, motion to still smiles. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's motion, motion, all of a sudden. Or the, you know of all the characters in the episode. And everybody was happy. Everybody was having a good time because life was good. But the problem with that is, 
I think the reason why many liked the show was the same reason that the show ultimately had problems. Real life isn't like that. Every episode of Chips ends the same, but every episode of our lives don't end emotion to steal smiles. So we've been exploring King David this summer, and he's had some motion to steal smile moments, certainly, right? We've explored those. And there's been some pivotal, life-changing messy as well. Well, this morning, we're going to go another life-changing messy for sure. And what we find is things are good, but things can get bad really fast. Things can get messy really, really fast. This morning, we explore the, the story of King David and his son Absalom. And this story is a reminder today that, that even in our greatest efforts to airbrush, Photoshop, or carefully craft a life exempt, exempt of trouble, trouble will in some instance find us. It certainly will. Not only will Missy find us, but if we live as if we're going to just continue the status quo and live amongst the flames, those flames don't get smaller. How many of you are familiar with the uh, show on HBO called Succession? Succession. Okay. This is a show. Um, I can count on you, Ted Strode. Yes. All right. This is a wildly successful show. You check it out. All right. Um, and it's a show of, that's very common in ingredients with the story of David and Absalom. In terms of this show is about this media business that's a family media business where the aging CEO is preparing to pass on his legacy and leadership of his big media conglomerate. And what ensues in this show is infighting, disagreements, and just loyalty questions all over the board that put the family's relationships and the family business in tension. And this is what we see today. David is, of course, revered as this iconic standard of Hebrew leaders in the Bible. But as we will find out today, the family business, his kingdom, and David's family dynamics are about to collide with his deficits in self-leadership and parenting. The story of Absalom and David follows the path of one traumatic event that puts David... His son Amnon, who is the crown prince, the next in line to be king when, when David can no longer lead. His son Absalom and his daughter Tamar and his kingdom, all in this crazy tension with one another. We've been exploring the life of David and all his highs and lows. And in the midst of David's great man after God's own hard life, there was trouble. Not only trouble, but a grease fire. That no matter what David did or didn't do, it just seemed to keep getting worse. David's trouble came from these competing sides of his responsibility to his family and to his kingdom. So let's, let me get you on ramp here to where we're at in this story today. David had just grieved the death of his son, conceived by Bathsheba two weeks ago with Dr. J. Smith. We, we talked about that a little bit. 
Yet all seemed a little bit better as Bathsheba then had a new baby named Solomon. How many people have heard of Solomon before? So we got promise here, right? Things are good. So we got some good going on, but we've experienced the loss. But while David is just dealing with that family stuff, there are still battles being fought in the surrounding areas of David's kingdom. So following the defeat of the Ammonites, whether he said it or not, David needed a break. I mean, loss, new son, battles, whew, got a lot of stuff going on. And according to 2 Samuel 8, David had effectively conquered all the surrounding areas. We were good. We were good. And in this fateful moment, David did something unintentionally, we don't really know, but he put his family, his kingdom, and his man after his own, God's, own, own heart of God and all that oversight on pause. He pressed that button on the dashboard on the console that said autopilot. And what we recognize is sometimes that's necessary, but we can't stay there. And David's going to recognize that he stayed there entirely too long. What ensued from that moment was this, as we've talked about, this like, why in the world is this in Scripture story? A full story such of love, grace, and mercy. We find in, in 2 Samuel this, like, this, this nefarious group of chapters with deceit, indecency, and character deficits that just doesn't seem to fit. It's not remotely helpful for young ears to hear. You know, when Pastor Lewis is talking about things to talk about in Kid Zone, this story doesn't make the cut. As a matter of fact, it's not even in the conversation. Let me delicately tell you what happens here. David's son, Amnon, who's the next in line to be king, has a traumatic misgiving with his half-sister, Tamar. And in a moment where David could have leadership, could discipline, could console, he doesn't show up. He doesn't show up. This encounter angers Tamar's full brother, Absalom, which is David's son, of course. He didn't come through, David. In a moment where leadership for both his loves, his family, and his, and his kingdom could have taken place, a quick and prudent discipline for Amnon's unacceptable actions and a fatherly supportive presence for Tamar, it never happened. And as the days went along, and in the next two years, as Absalom take, took care of his Sister, nothing happened, and Absalom continued to get angrier and angrier and angrier. Vengeance was building. David, who had always been regarded as a worthy and wise judge in the eyes of his people, now has damaged that reputation, not only in the eyes of his people, his kingdom, but his family. 
Because of this, Absalom also sees King David, his father, as an accomplice in what has happened to his sister Tamar. So, nothing's happened after two years. So Absalom devises an elaborate plan to, to throw this party extravaganza for all the sheep to get sheep sheared. And he invites all of his brothers. And King David sends all of his brothers to the party. But he doesn't show up. Absalom instructs his servants to get Amnon, remember, the next in line to be king. As it says in Scripture, heart merry with wine. And then Absalom instructs his servants to take Amnon's life, and he does. David's like, what? What? Whoa. So this court, of course, angers David with his family and his kingdom on autopilot, wondering what happened. His heir to the throne is now dead. His son Absalom has fled to sanctuary, and his daughter Tamar continues to be described as a desolate woman living in her brother's house. That doesn't get any better. David would ultimately forgive Absalom, but, but the forgiveness is very shallow because Absalom looks for an opportunity to be, to be the next in line now, and David doesn't do it. As a matter of fact, David doesn't make any new plan for that, which just angers and puts Absalom over the edge. No recalibration of the succession plan to the throne. So Absalom is plotting something, and King David is not going to be prepared for it. So that's the backstory leading up to, to what we're talking about today. David, the overlapping collision of his two worlds, his family and his kingdom. And we're going to pick this story up in 2 Samuel 15. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He's planning something. He's planning something. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who became who came to the king asking for justice, so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Absalom is shifting the public opinion of the people of Israel because King David is not available. He's not available. He's on autopilot. 
Absalom was cutting folks off to their way to the city gate where they were going for justice. And Absalom and Tamar received no justice. So Absalom is present and ready to lock arms with those awaiting some justice, right? And David's just so unaware of what's going on. He's so unaware that this possible swaying of the public opinion is possible because things are good. Things are good with the kingdom. We've overtaken everybody. But then David does something crazy. He jumps ship. Verse 13, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. What? Where did this happen? I thought they were on my side. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The gold standard of kings, King David, the man after God's own heart, had abandoned the throne and left the building. His son now on the throne and the masses of David's people no longer supporting David. It's a mess. It's a mess. He has an entourage, though. He has a small group of people that left with him, left the building. And alas, he does have this wisdom in tactical battle. I mean, he's, he's really a good leader when it comes to that stuff. So he knows there's a reckoning coming. He knows the battle coming. And he knows that if I can get the upper hand on where this battle was fought, we got a chance. And he knew the plan was to get to the forest. If he can get the battle in the forest... My guys know that terrain better than Absalom's guys do. So now, in chapter 18, verse 6, David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. Advantage David. There, Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great. 20,000 men. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and on the, as the mule went under a thick branch of, branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, Joab is considered David's lead henchman in his entourage, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Verse 14, Joab says, I am not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. Even in the midst of this mess, David still loved his son Absalom. And he had actually asked Joab and his other supporters to deal gently for my sake with Absalom. Unfortunately, 
for unself-aware autopilot David, these were words in this moment that had lost power with his followers. Followers knew that Absalom could not continue if the kingdom was to continue, but David could not see that in his conflict. Joab knows the kingdom can never be the same unless Absalom is taken out of the equation for good. So here's David, a daughter that is seen in the public's eye as impure, as damaged, and two sons dead. What's he going to do? Can he stop this bleeding? Can he change the trajectory of this mess? Verse 24. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the, to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, if he is alone, he must have good news. And the runner came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another runner, and he called down to the gatekeeper, look, another man running alone. The king said, he must be bringing good news too. The watchman said, it seems to me that the first one runs like Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. He is a good man, the king said. He comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz called out to the king, all was well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up those who lifted their hands against my lord the king. The king asked, Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, I saw great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant. But I don't know what it was. The king said, stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. Then the Cushite arrived and said, my lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, may the enemies of my lord, the king of all who rise up to harm you, be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So an incredibly tough moment for David. And it actually gets worse before it gets better. At some point, he's going to have a really bad disagreement with Joab down the road. And it's just uh, a continual grease fire. Can he stop that bleeding, though? He's an icon starting to be step, steeped in, in regret and guilt. This avalanche of trouble just continues to follow his life after it was so good, right? Did David have the diagnostic capabilities, though, in those moments to make an adjustment? Well, when I think of good and bad happening concurrently, because the kingdom was good, 
David's kingdom was good. Then this bad just kind of blindsided him when he had things on autopilot. That's the way life is sometimes. When I think of that happening concurrently, I think of this full heart moment in the movie Forrest Gump. How many people remember? If you can't remember the the year 1984, maybe you can remember the movie Forrest Gump. Um, in, In this movie, Forrest Gump takes this moment to share wisdom, talking to his beloved deceased wife, Jenny, at her grave and says, I don't know if we have a destiny or if we're all just floating around accidental-like on a breeze, but I think maybe it's both. Maybe it's both. So this message today, can we for a moment consider the possibility that even in our state of both, our brokenness alongside of our victories, our sin, our our stupid decisions, (laughs) alongside of both thrivings and failures of our best intentions. With all of that, can we live with the possibility that God still wants to bless our mess? That God ultimately wants to be involved with his presence, with his wisdom, and his navigational resources into these confusing, uneven, troubled rooms of our life? So where is the hope in the story today? Well, it probably comes down to if we had an opportunity to interview a wiser King David after going through this mess, might there be some questions he might ask of us? Some diagnostic questions that we might ask of ourselves in the midst of our own messes. Questions that God could bless and walk along life with us through. So the first question might be, can we stay in touch with where we really are? Do we really know where we are personally and relationally on the roadmap of life? Do we find ourselves locating ourselves right now near the town of regret, trauma, life transition, or maybe even exhaustion? The second question a wiser David might ask is, Can we grow in self-awareness because I goofed that up? I goofed that up. I knew where I was. But knowing where you are is one thing. Knowing when it's not helpful to stay there is another. David might ask, do you fully understand the effects of your presence, your decisions, your behaviors have on other people? and the people that you love, and the people that matter to you and to God. Question number three, a wiser David might ask, can we identify the warning signals in our life? Are any of us this morning walking around the rooms of our life today with warning lights, 
buzzers and alarms going off. And just like the people of Lancaster that got crippled by the closure of plant two, just walking amongst those things without any changes or any adjustments. David might ask, is there a faithful step this morning that you might need to take to address those warnings, those alarms? Question number four, wiser David might ask us, can we stay adaptive and adjust when it's necessary? She summoned Lancaster, listened, and heard the warning signs that plant number two was going to close. And they found new thriving opportunities in another town. Yet others, even in the midst of the warning, could never adapt. David might ask, is there a faithful change or move this morning that you need to make? And finally, a wiser David would ask, can we trust God to help us navigate our mess? Can we trust God to offer his presence and his navigational expertise to our mess, our good and our challenging happening at the same time? The state of both, as Forrest Gump would say. David found out that when he got into a mess, that pausing everything was not a good plan and could be a dangerous place if we expect it to stay that way for a long time. A wiser David this morning might come clean and admit in his most challenging of moments, a man after God's own heart stopped trusting that pursuit. So David might ask, can you take a step of trust towards God this morning? But we really don't know how to respond, maybe, to some of those questions that David might ask us. If we can't figure out really where we are, are there flames around us? Am I near the city of regret? <laughs> Have, am I coming out of the city of loss? Where am I at on the life map? My family and I were able to enjoy back at the late uh, month of June, this vacation in Colorado. And when we were in Colorado, uh, it honestly was a lot of driving, a lot of hiking, a lot of, you know, traveling in areas I've never been before. Um, and, and people that know me will tell you that I like to know where I'm at. I, I'm, I'm, I know maps. I, I kind of am, am sharp directionally. If I've been somewhere, I can go there again. But if I've never been somewhere before, I cling to those things. As a matter of fact, it was driving my family nuts during the vacation because we were going to some place we'd never been. I'm, I got my phone, like Google Maps, and I'm like following. I'm following the little uh, uh, blue arrow, you know, on the road. You know, it's like we're still on that road, Dad. We're still there. Um, but that's just how I am. Um, and so, what's important for me is this dot, this red dot, 
that happens when we look up someplace we're not familiar with that tells us what? You are here. So in this moment, whether you have a mess or not, a good exercise for us this morning might be to figure out where we are. This you are here moment to calibrate ourselves on our life map and figure out where, what town are we in? What town are we coming out of? And what town are we heading towards? So in this moment, um, myself included, um, we need to identify maybe that red dot. So let's close our eyes here for a moment. I'm going to ask these questions again as you kind of consider um, identifying where you are on that map. And for a moment, let's just not think about where we're going for lunch today or what needs my attention when we walk out these doors. But let's close our eyes in a moment of worship and ask God, where am I? Can I today risk a brave and faithful gaze into the mirror of my life? And do I know the direction or path that I need to be taking to be more self-aware? And can I risk acknowledging the truth of how my mess affects those around me and those people that matter the most to me and to God? Now there are flashing lights and alarms going all on all around me right now that I can't identify or I can't control or I can't figure out how to respond to. And do I need God's wisdom and brave courage to address that or to address something very complicated and challenging? Is it possible that I don't know how to do it? That I need support? Is it possible that I've decided that it's just easier to use the autopilot button like David did? Or, or, or does my stress of the mess feel so complicated that the autopilot button seems like the only possible option? Can I adapt or make a change if I find my mess is unmanageable? And can I trust God to bless my mess in ways that might not look to fix it, but yet guides me to navigating the challenge of abundant life that experiences both the possibilities of the thriving and the heartbreaking? Can I see the mighty hand of grace being extended out to me today? Do I have the strength to reach out and grab it? Or can I trust God enough in this moment to give me the strength to grab his hand, even if I feel my cup is empty?
Gracious God, wherever we find ourselves today, wherever we have placed or recognized our dot, may we find you there. May we find you there holding us and guiding us. And we pray that you would convince us and remind us today that there is no dot, there is no known crevice that your mercy and presence cannot impact. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now, after identifying where you are on the map, let's hear one more time Psalm 88. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted amongst those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves.